well, Bob, it is just past New Year's Day, in fact. So happy 2020. Welcome, listeners, to The Learning Curve. Um, I'm here today with my intrepid co-host. I'm intrepid. No, you are You are my understated co-host, <laughs> the amazing Bob Bowden. And we're excited to join just a little bit by Thanks. Lance Azumi of the Pacific Oh, yeah, no, I'm looking Institute. forward to talking to Lance. And, yeah. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody! Uh, that uh, that was Bono. It's actually not New Year's Day, but it's a uh, it's a New Year's week. So, uh, yeah. So, and uh, still, are you, are you a YouTube fan back in the day, Kara? Uh, I mean, yes, of course, I was a YouTube fan. I, I mean, it, there's a little. There was one song there though where Bono got a little cl- crazy about like mole digging in a hole somewhere. They lost me for a while, but early YouTube. You know, I've, I remember elementary school when they were first popular. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Fantastic. How was your New Year, Bob? Oh, as I often say, it's uh, my least favorite holiday, and yet somehow, you know, somehow you have these rules in life, and then it just all the rules change for some. So somehow I had a, I had a, despite uh, New Year's Eve being my least favorite holiday, I ended up having a great time after all. So there you go for contradiction. You opened yourself up to the fun. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. Well, we've got a, we've got some. Um, you know, it's been. A slow news week. Most schools closed. Most uh, most states not yet back in session. Legislatures. So so a little less to talk about than usual, but some really good stuff nonetheless. So our first story of the week from the New York Times, um, from the Learning Network, uh, on December nineteenth. I love this one. What students are saying about how to improve public education. So basically, the Learning Network asked students to weigh in on a couple of things, disappointing NAEP scores, the most recent PISA results, and essentially asking them what they would do to improve American education. They only gave us in this particular uh, story the prompt that, that for which they had the most results. And the question to, that they put to students was, how can schools better teach and prepare students for life after graduation? So without getting too deep into it, there were you know a lot of really interesting answers. They gave us high level. Some of the stuff we were hearing from kids to take the stress and pressure away and simply let us learn. But this wasn't all just kids saying, oh, school's so stressful. Don't make me do as much. There were actually some, one young lady wrote in and said, we need actually more time. We need to go to a year round schedule because there's too much to do. We don't have enough time to do it in. And I'm not actually enjoying the experience. We heard some sad stories from students who said, um, and I've unfortunately, having grown up outside of Detroit, definitely been in schools that, that look like this, um, saying it's really hard for me to learn when um, when the facilities are so horrible. And we're not talking about like, oh, the paint is ugly. We're talking about rodents and roaches and in mm-hmm. bathrooms that, um, that nobody would want to use, right? Mm-hmm. It just got me thinking about how much, you know, the, the, the message that is sent to a person, I don't care who you are, if you're a kid or an adult, when your learning or work environment is constantly sending you the message that like, this is kind of a gross place. So maybe what you do isn't that important. But even more than that, the importance of facilities and how, especially in schools, the way um, buildings are set up and, and the way classrooms are configured can either encourage or discourage the kind of learning we want to see. So anyway, a lot of great stuff in there. I want just one quote that I wanted to give to our listeners. So this is from Grace Robertson from Wilmington, North Carolina. And I loved this. She said, oh, we have to tag her on Twitter. Then if we got to agree. I get this is great. People my age have smaller vocabularies. And if they don't know a word, they just quickly look it up online instead of learning it and internalizing it. The same goes for facts and figures and other subjects. Don't know who someone was in history class. Just look them up and read their bio. Don't know how to balance a chemical equation. The internet knows she's talking about the fact that 
the technology teachers and schools are relying upon technologies in the wrong ways. Mm -hmm. She's saying we should be using technology to support learning, not impede it. So I've gone on long enough, Bob. What did you think of this? I, I have a one hand and on the other hand. Okay, on the one hand. I think it's great to ask students what they think. I love the student that say that said the most I've gotten out of school so far was my uh, the most I've gotten from my civics and economic class. Wait, I said that wrong. It hardly even touched on what I'd actually need to know for the real world. That's what that's what the student said. I barely understand credit and they expect me to be perfectly fine living alone a year from now. We need to learn about real life, things that can actually benefit us. An art student isn't going to use biology and trigonometry in life. Exams seem so pointless. And so I read things like that. And that's yes, I think. The idea that we spend a year on trigonometry and zero time understanding mortgages or stocks or bonds, I say hella to the yes, Kara, to that kind of – so I, I, think, I think we could – I think it's hell to the yes, Bob. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> universities uh, you know, will, will ask have students review professors, and I think that's wonderful, and I think that we should have students maybe from middle school up, let alone high school, reviewing – uh, courses and teachers. We should do this as part of, you know, districts should do this uh, regularly. So I think that's all great. Here's my, on the other hand, you know, the New York Times as the platinum standard of mainstream media, you know, their, their bias through omission tactic, which we see. From, it certainly seems that they have cherry picked for us some of the comments that fit their narrative. So I loved some of the comments, like we just said. But I think they the, told us they were cherry picking just to go on the record in defense of the New York Times. Well, well please. Uh, but the I don't think they said that. Uh, it's, in other words, I, I, I'm detecting bias. When, when I see give more money to teachers and more support to teachers, when I see that kind of comment from students, but not one single student said anything about maybe some ineffective teachers are never fired. Really? No one says that. They just say pay them more. That's all the New York Times finds worthy in that kind of regard. Like, I feel like I'm being spun. And, you know, uh, whether or not the NEA and the AFT bought advertising from the New York Times last year, it certainly feels like they did based on some of the filtering that I'm detecting from the student comments. So that's oh my on the one hand. My. And, oh, oh, my. Yeah, How to take a wonderful oh, 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 these, the oh, mouths these. of babes and turn it political. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah they're, I turn it political. They, all these students are really worried about the teacher's salary. That's uh, they want to. Well, they, they probably hear quite a bit about it. I uh, mean, you know, they're in school with teachers all day and in, in kids par- what their parents say. And there's and there are, there are a lot of reasons mind that if, if I get the, if, if I don't get the feeling that the other part of like, gee, maybe there's some ineffective teachers here gets redacted. They're absolutely OK. I gotcha. I gotcha. Ineffective teachers. And also, hey, I'm, I'm for a kid saying teachers should be paid more because the vast majority of them should. But again, on to the next. Don't, don't story of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Right. So out of Kentucky. Oh, Kentucky. So as you'll remember, Bob, a couple of years ago, Kentucky finally passed a charter school law. Nobody said it was a good charter school law, but they finally passed a charter school law. Some of us got not really very excited because the quality of the law. And so now here we go. Surprise, surprise, a mere two months. This, this story, I'm sorry, is from the Louisville Courier Journal. Newport School Board rejects Kentucky's first charter school application. So they finally get an application for a school, right? A group of parents become the first to apply to open a charter school. And then the local school board, of course, rejects their application. Wow. 
it, why would something like that happen? It's great. Well, now I let's understand. To be, fair, to be fair, we have no information from this article about the quality of the application, but we do know a couple things. We know that first of all, the way this law is set up, that a lo- the fact that a local school board that these folks are even applying to a local school board instead of an independent authorizer is probably setting them up for failure. Oh. Also, could be said, <laughs> maybe, let's just say maybe it was a terrible application. We don't know. Maybe okay. so they point out, so right, so the school board says that they um, they found there was a lack of competency evidenced in the application around teaching special needs students. I have certainly seen poor charter school applications. They also said they found bouts of significant plagiarism, um, you know, suggesting that they were like, this group was just lifting stuff from charter school. Now, let me ask you, Bob, when there are no charter schools in your state and you have a good idea about how to start a school, what are you going to do? You're going to look to some other bureaucratic document that says, these are all the things you need to do when you need to get kids a school bus. So could have been a bad application, but this is just, you know, things aren't getting better for parents and kids in Kentucky. Uh, especially given the recent elections, you're going to have uh, a governor who's now less sympathetic to this kind of thing. Right. Who knows how many years before we see Kentucky's first charter school? Right. Well, it's bad enough to me. The part you already named of you know getting McDonald's to authorize a Burger King part of this, you know, going to the local school board to get a charter school, that part is bad enough. But I say, hold on, vinyl scratch. There's something else here, which is the quote about how bad the charter application was from who? Wait, what? Let me read. Well, who was it from? The superintendent. There's the, so wait a minute. The superintendent's role includes trashing the charter application and any of his He's the authorizer. Like, are you kidding me? That's to the person the board hires to run the district schools should be involved in greenlighting whether or not he or she has competition for themselves. Like the superintendent, that's even dumber than the board making these decisions. It's the dumbest structure I've ever heard. I mean, I, you know, I would, I'm prepared Yet now it to. persists in many places. <laughs> I'm prepared to let, you know, the Kentucky Dirt. Now, let, I think the Meadowlands horse race track in New Jersey should decide if it should replace the Kentucky Derby and the Triple Crown because we don't, we don't care about conflict of interest in Kentucky, right? There's no such thing as conflict of interest. You might as well let somebody with a reason to ban their competition have the power to trash their competition. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, that what I, I flipped out about on this. I'm like, the superintendent is standing there, quoted in the story, trashing the charter application. That is an amount of stupid, even the charter opponents. I would think they would, even the charter opponents would say, gee, you guys think maybe this is a little too obvious? Can we get some, someone to pretend to be an outside consultant to bash the charter application? Won't that look better? And they're like, no, just let the superintendent bash the charter application. No that, danger. There are fine. no charter schools in Kentucky to anger. So you're just <laughs> fine. Right. There's nobody there. And on to the next. And this one, I'm really excited to get our friend Lance Izumi to comment on this. Um, but out of L.A., here we go, California, charter schools versus teachers unions. This is from the L.A. Times, a high-stakes L.A. school board election takes shape. So, okay, high level here, um, unions versus charters. Charters have taken, as we know, we've talked about before on this show, a big hit recently in California passing a new law that's going to give local districts greater discretion in denying charter school petitions, among other things. So now we have open school board seats and we're, it's going to school board election. Yeah. In LA school board election. So open seats for school boards matter because will they be populated with 
people who are sympathetic to charter schools and letting charter schools maintain some degree of autonomy? Or will they be populated with folks who would rather side with the teachers unions and see fewer charter schools and see more restrictions on charter school growth, charter school autonomy, charter school diversity, all of that good stuff. It all remains to be seen. So we know here that um, the Charter School Association has not yet said who it's advocating for or supporting. The teachers unions have picked their candidates, it would appear. The thing that just gets me about this story, Bob, it's like, so the politics in LA are fascinating and crazy and, and frightening all at the same time. But at the same token, what this really says to me, it's like we spend all this time talking about the control that school boards should have. And some pe- sometimes I think there's a good point that like local control is really important. That's what the U.S. is all about. This is how our school systems came up. But when we are constantly, and this happens in my own community here too, right, in, in Massachusetts, constantly school, boards elect- school board elections become so political and so contentious. And, we're, and there's so much policy churn sort of associated with the swinging of the pendulum back and forth over who's making the decisions that it's probably no surprise that LA can't get anything done. It's probably no surprise that its schools, except for some of the charters, continue to fail to serve kids, right? Because it's politics over progress. Oh, I see. I see your point. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I mean, that could certainly be the case too, I think, where it's, um, yeah, where there's, you know, a certain degree of consistency. If you go to corporate America, a certain degree of consistency and vision, uh, you know, generally regarded as a good thing if you're an investor in a stock of a company and they have a CEO with a long-range plan and, you know, changing leadership. You know, if you change CEOs every time, you know, as often as school boards, you know, change their majorities or something, that could be seen as not a good thing. Um, I, I just I, – I focus on the fact that there are apparently there's, – there's seven seats – in the LA school board and four of the seven are up are they'll be in this March. They'll be voted on in a couple of months, the four of the seven seats. Well, the three that aren't being voted on are allegedly charter supporters, but there they're kind of like, they seem to me to be kind of like wavering a bit charter supporters, but nevertheless, for the record. So the UTLA, the teachers union there has their four candidates. Here's who you should go elect these people. Two of the four people they say uh, that they, uh, endorse for these four open seats are teachers. Okay, so one of them, District 3, the UTLA union candidate is Scott Schmerlison, who the union describes as a longtime LAUSD educator. Now, is this person retired or are they still a teacher? I'm not sure, whatever. Another, the District 5, a woman named Jackie Goldberg is described as a longtime teacher. So I, I, I suspect they both are or were union members. And this is... The union hoping for a scenario that's too rarely talked about, in my opinion, where, where you have current or former union members sitting across a negotiation table from other union, from the union leaders, where they're negotiating with themselves, essentially. And I said this once on a radio show and a caller came, freaked out, like called me up. This is a WFAN in New York City, which is a normally a sports, uh, a, a big, a big. Well, uh, this is kind of like a sport. Sports. Yeah, yeah, it's like a sports station, but they have a Sunday morning public affairs show. Anyway, so I was on talking about education, and I, I mentioned this thing about it. sometimes you have union members negotiating with the union, like they're the union's on both sides of the table, and someone is like, "How dare you? You know, give me the names of every person who's done that." Well, I, I, anybody know, can I, run for school board, Bob, and teachers. There, there should be a role for teachers. You don't know for sure where their sympathies lie. 
Okay, but I'm coming to put the union loves that. Please, they love negotiating with themselves, don't they? I mean, why they do? But I think isn't the larger honest? point here, though, too, is that this is part of what happens when you have elected. I mean, we could talk about elected versus appointed school boards, right? You can talk about what it means to have. But, but so, I mean, I, I would hate. I would disagree with you that we should like prohibit teachers or former union members. Maybe that's not what you're saying, but, but that, that's a huge exactly. problem. But I, but but I, I think, think that I would agree with problem you. Is just the politis, politicization. I can't say it. Politicization yeah. of, of, of education. Like, I, so would, this, I think I would agree with you. I've had, I've had a, a former, both former mayor and a former speaker of the New Jersey assembly who said to me that, uh, that, um, it's better. He 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 personally like disbanded his school board and made a and cha- and changed it to being a you know a, a a mayoral kind of entity. He basically you know nominated his own people to run the schools in his town and and made it under mayoral control. I mean, New York City did much the same thing at a much bigger level. But uh, his point was he said he said to me, so you can get a lot better people if you can just if they don't you don't make them run for office first. He goes if you can just find really competent qualified people and just Give them a role on a board that controls your public schools. You, he just said, you know, no disparagement on anyone listening who might be on a school board. He, he just said, generally, you can get a lot better people if you don't make them run for office first. And that made sense to me. And I think it, you well, know, so anyway. And I would my- say you can get a lot more done when you're not always thinking about running for office again. And when you're not, you know, and when the vision's always got to change because you have to sell something. But three great stories of the week. We, Oh, my gosh. We agree. Bob. Yeah. All right, so episode really one. good. <laughs> What's even better than us agreeing is the fact that after the break, we're going to have the great Lance Izumi on the line, and he's going to talk to us all about charter schools, district schools, his new book, etc. And we'll be right back. I'm so happy that we are being joined by the great Lance Izumi, Senior Director of, for the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute. He has written and produced book studies, films, on a wide variety of topics. Most recently, the 2017 book, The Corrupt Classroom, but even more recently, the 2019 book, Choosing Diversity, How Charter Schools Promote Diverse Learning Models and Meet the Diverse Needs of Parents and Children. And I should add, as I always like to say with Lance, he's the one person who is in both Waiting for Superman and the Cartel movie, the great Lance Izumi. Lance, Lance, thanks for your time today on the Learning Curve podcast. Well, I appreciate that, Bob. Happy New Year to you and all the listeners out there. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Well, uh, same to you. And so let's start with that uh, book, Choosing Diversity, because, you know, I, I was I noticed you, you examine 11 different kinds of charter schools and and make the case they offer, you know, the type of curricular variety that parents want and students need. And for those who'd like to treat charter schools like a monolith, I think even focusing on just 11 categories would be an elusive task. Very hard to limit it to 11. But, you know, I personally visited charter schools for autism, charter schools for rural students, charter schools for no excuses behavior, charter schools for charter schools for ethical culture or foreign language immersion or all kinds of things. So what do you say, though, to the charter haters who would say that diversity of school types creates uniformity of student types within a particular school, and they argue that that student uniformity is a bad thing. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, you know, I I think that, uh, I mean, that's just simply incorrect. 
Uh, if you look, for example, at a lot of the charter schools that uh, I look at in my Choosing Diversity book, uh, it's not just that the uh, models are different. You know, the models that you talk about are, all, are many of the same models that I visited also, too, in my book. Uh, I mean, I, I visited a, a charter school for autism. I visited a, a charter school for homeless kids. I visited charter schools uh, that uh, use uh, online platforms for their learning. I visited charter schools that use the classical education model. So the models are all different, but also, too, the, if you look at the kids who are in those uh, charter schools, you know, they're very different from each other. I mean, it's not like you have a monolithic uh, group of kids. Um, so, for example, uh, in uh, this one school I visited, Design Tech, uh, which is a charter school that is actually located on the Oracle uh, corporate campus in the Bay Area. Uh, you know, if the kids represent there are not just some, uh, you know, thin layer of the upper crust in the Bay Area, but actually, you know, are representative of all socioeconomic classes, you know, wide variety of racial uh, categories. I mean, they really, the, oh, their parents are not all school, are Oracle workers, in other words. It's not like a... Uh, the it's not like the kids of Oracle workers. In other no, words. no, absolutely not. That's uh, and I'm glad you uh, brought that up to clarify that the the campus of this charter school, Design Tech, is located on the uh, corporate uh, business campus of the Oracle Corporation, but the students who attend the school are actually from the uh, you know whole surrounding community. So they're around the Bay Area. So therefore, these are not just, you know, employees, uh, the students of employees. And, you know, again, as I mentioned, that uh, the um, demographic makeup, it really is like the United Nations uh, when you go over there. And so, you know, th these are kids who are, you know, from, uh, you know, some of the poorest areas of San Francisco area, and also middle class kids. Uh, and again, you know, all racial and uh, demographic categories. So I think that it's uh, important to understand that, you know, the diversity that I talk about in my Choosing Diversity book applies not just to the models, but to the students who actually make use of these schools. That's that's amazing, Lance. I mean, I think we can all appreciate that it's important to have diversity of model, but that and diversity of approach, but also that kids benefit from you know being exposed to people who are different from them. We, we they benefit from diversity, and teachers do too. Um, I'm curious though, as you are writing about this book and looking at all of these charter schools that are so very different from one another, at the same time, there's a bit of a raging national debate, or at least a split. Maybe it's not raging, but a split between those those who really favor sort of what I would call replication over the kind of innovation that you're describing. So folks that are, you know, saying, let's just get as many charter schools out there as possible to get kids in them because we know that we can replicate really good schools versus those who say, hey, don't crowd out sort of the boutique charter schools, the what some would call, I don't know if I would, but mom and pop charter schools that might be more like closer to each individual community. I wonder what's your take on this split in the charter school community right now, and, and how was it informed by your research for this work? Well, you know, I think that uh, it, my feeling is that we need to have um, a charter school supply that meets the demand out there. And the, the demand is not just numbers. Uh, the, you know, sure, we need to have a lot more charter schools because, uh, you know, uh, there are 
so many kids on waiting lists for charter schools, but we also need to have the types of charter schools that meet the individual needs of the, par- uh, the, the kids and their parents. I think that when, you know, when we talk about school choice uh, as advocates for choice, we often say that you know, we want to provide the education that meets the individual needs of students. And in order to do that, you need just uh, need quantity, but you also need to have that a particular type of education that meets the needs of a kid, you know, let's say with autism, let's say with some special needs, a learning disability, or um, has uh, some background problem. For example, you know, one of the schools that I uh, profile in my book is called Life Learning Academy, which is a school located on Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, and uh, that school focuses on kids who, you know, have really fallen through the crack. These are kids that the regular public schools uh, cannot educate or have found to be extremely difficult to educate. So these are kids who have extensive criminal histories, uh, long-term dropouts, kids who are homeless. And so uh, the Life Learning Academy Charter School on Treasure Island is basically their last stop, their last resort. And, um, you know, it's uh, uh, been extremely successful in the 20 years that it's been in existence. Um, You know, they have a a special type of education program geared to these kids uh, with these problems, uh, oftentimes focusing on project-based learning. But they also, you know, are, uh, you know, very unique in terms of, like, how how uh, they uh, are dealing with the, you know, the uh, family and uh, living issues that these kids are having. So, for example, they have just completed uh, their uh, first dormitories, so that they're going to be the first um, uh, charter school, first publicly funded school in California, K-12, that actually has dormitory facilities. So, you know, you have to have uh, those types of schools, not just uh, in, uh, the types of schools that may be part of a much larger chain of charters. But you, uh, these are kids who need that type of uh, schooling, that type of education environment. And, uh, you know, the charter schools uh, have that opportunity because of their flexibility to offer that. And so I think that we have to look at both numbers, but also, too, at the type of schools that are being offered. Lance, I was pretty influenced by your book back in the day, as they say, from 2007, your book, Not As Good As You Think. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about traditional district schools, and uh, it probably won't be a new analogy to you, but a lot of suburban parents have the same feeling about their public schools as they do about their congressmen, meaning I don't like most of them, but our local one is good. Yeah, our local, but those, all those other ones are bad, but our local one is good. And and this was uh, a work that you did to kind of say, actually, a lot of these suburban schools are not as good as you think. And how often, no matter how often we see NAEP res- results or, or PISA test results, reminding us how low-performing schools, uh, how many of them there are in America, how two-thirds of American eighth graders can't read at grade level, uh, you know, this still seems to persist that, well, my local school is good. Look at their nice football stadium or their band uniforms or cheerleader uniforms or like it just kind of seems like a good school. They've all got iPhones and new sneakers and stuff like that, but there's often too little learning going on. Has anything changed in 13 years? Well, unfortunately, not a whole lot, actually. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much, uh, Bob, for you know mentioning my previous work called "Not as Good as You Think." Um, you know, I had done a, a book by that title uh, here for 
middle class and more affluent schools here in California in some of the you know Tonia suburbs that we have you know things that uh, places that would be very familiar to your listeners places like Malibu or Silicon Valley Orange County places like that and yet you know you had schools in these zip codes where the students more than half of them were failing to perform at the proficient level in one of them uh, core subjects and you know when I, I ended up doing a series of uh, other studies on other states including your home state of New Jersey and you were so good to help me uh, at our launch event for sure you came here and spoke it was a great event yeah and, and uh, I should have mentioned your original work was about middle class schools you updated it saying even the even some of the wealthy neighborhoods just just like you just said like some of their performance isn't so great either but I guess yeah, it's not, not, not great. And, and the thing of it is that has continued. I mean, if you look, for example, at the most recent uh, National Assessment for Educational Progress, the so-called Nations Report Card scores that just recently came out, I mean, like here in uh, California, uh, for example, if you look at the scores of um, – uh, eighth graders who were not low income. So you're talking middle class, more affluent kids, uh, that half or more of those students failed to perform at the proficient level on the NAEP uh, reading and math examinations. So that problem uh, continues, it persists, and you know, it's, it's the same you know, across the nation. Now, I think that what's important, uh, though, and this is one of the things that I also brought up in my book, Choosing Diversity, is that, you know, and this may go to uh, part of the reason why we may think that, uh, you know, uh, parents, um, you know, may not uh, take uh, these test scores as seriously as they should, is that there are so many other types of factors that also concern parents. And this is one of the things that I wanted to get to in my Choosing Diversity book. Yes, the uh, academic performance of kids is, of course, incredibly imp uh, important, but also so are issues that involve things such as public safety or uh, safety for these kids. And, uh, you know, oftentimes parents will make choices about which school or they want to uh, send their kid to or have problems with their current school, especially if it's a public school, um, not, maybe not based upon the test scores, but uh, based upon something like the fact that their kid is being bullied every day, that their sure. kid is in danger of, you know, maybe getting into a fight or being even, you know, knifed or gunned down. Those are the kinds of things, uh, factors that really catch the attention of parents, uh, you know, e even more so, you know, than, um, you know, maybe the, a, a test score that's given once a year. Do you find, Lance, that in some of the, as you put it, tonier suburban communities or even some of the wealthier communities where people make the assumption that the schools are good, do you find that parents are um, sort of just unaware of, of the fact that performance is comparatively low? Or are there other things masking this, like to Bob's point that we always think everything's fine in our own backyard? Do, do you have any insight into, into how parents are, are parsing that? I, I think it, you know it, it runs the gamut. Uh, so I think that you do have parents who are just not really informed. I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that you find is that I mean, for, for example, here in California, where you have um, you know there, there's certain accountability laws that uh, you know are um, that that uh, optimally would involve um, parental involvement at the school district level, for example, that you see very low turnout by parents, you know, when uh, these types of meetings are held. And I think that so there, there probably is not as much um, information that parents uh, have, but also, too, I think one of the other things that, um, you know, uh, happens is the fact that when you have 
less choice or no choice uh, about where to send your kids, then, you know, I think that uh, there is a kind of complacency that overtakes parents because what are you going to do? You know, you're ju- you have uh, just this yeah. one school to send your kids might to. Might as well be happy. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, you might as well be happy or try to make the best of things uh, or put lipstick on a pig basically. And so one of the things that I found out when I did a film uh, actually on my Not As Good As You Think uh, uh, book, uh, I, I did a film actually uh, that also in, uh, involved uh, looking did, did at... You put a lips, did you put lipstick on a pig, Lance? Because for a film, that'd be a great visual. You could have got a pig. For a book, book cover, that would be a great visical, visual. Or a book, yeah. I, I Lance out there be, in, a, in, a, in a farm I, chasing a pig. <laughs> I think that would be a great opening for my next film, Bob, you know, <laughs> and, and I think you should produce it. <laughs> be, actually, I would, I would do that in one second. I Gentlemen, would I'm, I'm a little bit frightened as to the turn be, this conversation has taken. <laughs> Lance and I heading out to a pig well, farm. That sounds great. Well, I think I mean, it would be a buddy film. You know, <laughs> I can okay. the ticket. The, yeah. the ticket sales are just they're, yeah. they're, they're no. flying right now. Lance is right. Boring. It's flying somewhere. We I get overalls on. I'm going to take this back for a moment. Now, Lance, (laughs) because you're sitting out there in California, and here I am all the way across the other side of the country, very cold, as you noted before we actually uh, started recording here. One of the things that that I think we do a lot of here on the East Coast, especially when it comes to school reform or or anti-school reform, I should say, is we sort of see what's going on in California and then it sort of hits Chicago and we all sort of sit and scratch our heads and wonder when is it coming to Massachusetts? And uh, we'll be, you know, we we talked earlier at the top of the show about the upcoming school board elections in LA. And I would just love to get your take on what's going on in your great state of California, especially maybe down there in one of the largest public school districts in the entire country. And um, and this just huge opposition to charter schools. We've seen new laws passed recently that are going to make it more difficult. Tell tell us what's going on. Well, you know, it's a uh, it's an unfortunate situation. You know, just overall, uh, what's interesting in Los Angeles is that uh, you know a few years ago uh, the. Uh, in the last elections for the school, uh, school board down there, you actually had a majority of the uh, board members who voted in who were supposedly charter school supporters. And then you had, uh, of course, the big Los Angeles teachers strike that came up uh, la- this past 2019. And, uh, you know, that ended up, you know, co- basically uh, turning that board. And so the board actually, uh, in one of the things that they, they, they did was to actually pass a resolution calling on Sacramento to, uh, you know, to enact a moratorium on the expansion of charter schools. And this is from a pro-charter school board. And so that was, uh, I mean, uh, really appalling to see. Uh, the other thing, though, that uh, the fallout that came from that strike and also its impact on the school board is that uh, uh, one of the things that the board agreed to was to put a uh, parcel tax uh, initiative on the local ballot there uh, to raise taxes for more spending at the, in the school district down in L.A. And uh, everybody thought that it would probably pass. And not only did it not pass, uh, it didn't get the two-thirds vote that it needed, but it actually lost by a landslide. 
So it was uh, the vote against it was 55 to 45 uh, percent. And so um, Los Angeles taxpayers told the district that by no means were they willing to increase their taxes significantly in order to pay for um, the the district to basically continue its losing ways. I mean, continue one of the to do what it's that, doing, yeah. Yeah, you know, because there was no uh, sense that the money was going to go to any kind of reform to improve the low test scores, the low graduation rate, all those sorts of things that uh, you alluded to, Kara. Uh, you know, it would basically just be uh, going to, you know, satisfying the rapacious uh, whims of the lo- local teachers, you know, the United Teachers of Los Angeles. And so, therefore, I don't see that uh, people down there felt that they were going to be getting any bang for that added tax buck and so therefore they voted down this uh, uh this tax initiative by you know as i said landslide margin so i think that really uh muddied the waters for things down there and so you know even though we think of california and especially some place like los angeles as being a very blue very liberal area uh it's actually you know uh, the the politics are actually uh, a lot more nuanced than people would think and so, you know, how is uh, the, uh, the, this election going to turn out? And ter- uh, the uh, charter school advocates believe that they need to have a couple more uh, seats on that board to ensure that they retain a at least nominal majority, uh, which is important because, as you pointed out, the, the state passed a law in 2019 that makes it uh, much easier for local school boards to uh, prevent uh, charter schools from either expanding or to be renewed. And so, therefore, who sits on these boards is going to be extremely important over the coming years. And so, uh, you know, it's a terrible uh, law. Uh, That's how it eliminated the state charter authors, the state state level. In other words, appealing to the state if your charter gets denied, that got eliminated. And they basically made it where a district can just cite any kind of decreased revenue as as a justification for rejecting a charter application and. Gee, oh, that's a- absolutely, Bob. I mean, and it's even much worse than that. I mean, you, uh, the types of reasons that the state gives to local school boards to uh, deny a charter petition include things like, uh, you know, that the, uh, it's not in the community interest or that the charter duplicates programs that the uh, local schools already have, even if those uh, local schools are not implementing those programs very well and the students are suffering because of it, you know. And yeah. so, uh, yet, you know, there are all these added reasons now that the local school boards can use as an excuse to uh, prevent uh, charter schools from coming into existence. You know, the only good news I see, uh, uh, Lance, is that it says, I'm reading here, Gavin Newsom's popularity is now uh, 44% likely voters disapproving, 43% approving. This was, I guess, back in October, that poll. So anyway, maybe his popularity is turning negative. Well, I mean, mean, and and which is interesting given the fact that you know you would think again that you know this uh, state is a monolith, you know, uh, very blue, very democratic, and yet here's a a guy who has, uh, you know, he's basically underwater in terms of his approval rating, and uh, you know, I think that uh, you know that shows that uh, you know there is a uh, even a tolerance that uh, or level that even Californians won't tolerate. (laughs) He is, yeah, or or they. People are thinking. Yeah. He is Lance is going to be senior director of the Center for Education at Pacific Research Institute. And you can buy, wherever finer books are sold, the book called Choosing Diversity How Charter Schools Promote Diverse Learning Models and Meet the Diverse Needs of Parents and Children. 
Get that book if you care about the future of education and the charter school sector in particular. Great topic and great book. Thank you so much for being with us, Lance. Thanks very much, Kara. And Bob, it's always great to be on the show with you. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, I can come on again and we can chat more about uh, charters and choice. And we're going to I'm going to get the banjo. We're going to rent a truck, go find a pig farm. We're going to have a whole I can see the whole thing. I I'll can bring the lipstick. <laughs> Kara, you come with us. You're coming with us. Uh, I'm frightened. I'm scared. I'm scared. But I'm brave. I'll, I'll get I'll get my overalls ready, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. We'll see you later. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, our this is our opinion section. We cite other people's opinions. You know, earlier we have our own opinions. Anyway, our opinion section, Kara. We begin with my commentary pick for the week. This by Kate Hardiman, who says we should teach kids civics, not let them cut class to go protest. Oh man, this is straight down the middle of the strike zone for me. She's referring to Fairfax, Virginia County Public Schools that will become one of the largest uh, districts in the nation to allow excused absences for civic engagement activities. The Washington Post reports that while the Virginia district's new policy does not define civic engagement, it may include activities such as marches, sit-ins, trips to Richmond to lobby legislators. Students as young as seventh graders may invoke the policy to miss class without consequence. She writes, Kate Hardiman writes, students might love the idea of a new excuse for cutting class, but Fairfax County sets a potentially harmful precedent when it permits and even encourages its students to participate in protests while they're supposed to be in school learning. And my take is, you know, as you may have inferred, yes, thank you, Kate. I couldn't agree more. Um, I would say, well, if you're going to do this, why not encourage students to schedule their own learn about pizza days where they prove they've spent the day at a pizza parlor or, and get excused absences or maybe real world experience in the physics of skateboarding by free cl- uh, free skipping class. Wait, Bob, you didn't have learn day. about pizza day at school. I did. I mean, you, you don't go to school because you sit and eat pizza at a pizza parlor all day or or the, or you get to watch skateboarding all day and call it physics. Like, it's ridiculous. I mean, like I had to say, Bob, I knew when I just had one quick thing. I knew when you when I saw this, that it was just going to sing to you like oh, you said, right in the right hey, in the strike zone for you. But wow. one, just one quick little what caveat, be because problem? we just okay, spoke with the great Lance Azumi, who's all about diverse charter schools. And I think that there might be something to be said here for a school model that really teaches kids or encourages kids, not not encourages them to go out and protest. I don't think that adults in the building should be telling kids what to trust about or putting them in any sort of danger, but encourages kids to be aware of what's going on around them and speak up and really exercise their right, exercise their voice. I think that there could be room to think a little bit more about, you don't like blanket rules, Bob, but you know, maybe we can say there are exceptions to this blanket, uh, don't don't let them do this idea. Uh, a, I believe in different uh, kinds of flexibility for schools of choice than schools of coercion, which is all the ones that are not schools of choice. And B, I would say that uh, that um, 
Oh, I forgot B. <laughs> I mean, I would but say the B, their the criteria, I got, I got it. B, their, school, school their criterion school. is, is it popular? Oh, look, the teachers like it and the students like it. The teachers are happy to announce uh, you don't have to come to school that day. And the kids are happy to, to just go and like not go to work that day. That that criterion for deciding public policy on education, like, look, both the teachers and students are happy to do no work. That is a failed uh, way to, uh, you know, design. And one thing, yes, if it is a school of choice, I do think they have far more flexibility in that regard. And, and, and I'll give you a C. When I was uh, in ju- middle school, it used to be called junior high, uh, there was a presidential election. We were all encouraged to come and make campaign materials for our candidate of choice. I had this great social studies teacher, Mrs. Marshall. She didn't care which candidate we supported. She just wanted to know why. It was great uh, civic engagement. And so I thought that was fantastic, but it was far different from not going to school that day. Well, yay, teachers. I love that you remember Mrs. Marshall. That's oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's I wrote, fantastic. I wrote her le- uh, letters years later. I, I, I did. I like four or five years later, like when I was finishing high school, I wrote her a letter about how much I appreciated her. So For me, it was Mrs. Sullivan still teaching today. So kind of on this topic, our tweet of the week, I think this is, this is a, a sobering tweet, sort of a tough tweet, but uh, it related to the idea that, you know, we're talking about a person who is an icon of exercising his voice. So um, Representative John Lewis of Georgia, civil rights icon, has stage four pancreatic cancer and will be undergoing treatment. So that that's a tweet um, from CNN. We all found out, you know, uh, right, right after, uh, right before the new year holiday. And this is just one that is is so tough, Bob. And I think that, you know, this is a man, no matter um, agree or disagree with his politics, this is a man who has truly um, been an example um, to to all of us. And I, I would say, especially I would hope that the school children of the world, this is maybe an example of why we should be teaching more in our schools about the civil rights movement and about icons of the civil rights movement. Um, because this is a person who has, you know, dedicated his entire life to, to advancing civil rights in this country. And um, we're going to all be rooting for him and praying for him. Coming up next week on the Great Learning Curve podcast is Mancia Alvarado, Vice President and Executive Director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. I suspect we'll be hearing a little bit about a Supreme Court case that is looming in the war in the world of education and also religious liberty. Uh, that will be on our next episode. I don't remember what number we're up to. This, do you remember? Kara, what number? Gotta episode? be like 15, I think. Uh, oh, actually, no. Look, we're getting this. this. This is 16. Aha! It's 16. So that will be episode 17. Anyway, it will be uh, dropping, as they say in the rap world, <laughs> on the, next week. As, as the kids say, Bob? <laughs> yes, yeah, as, as, as those kids out there say, who are too often on my lawn. Uh, that's what will be next <laughs> week. But nevertheless, thank you for joining us here, uh, gentle listener on the Learning Curve podcast. And we'll see you next week, won't we, Kara? Hear you next week.